What's up, everyone? This is Cole Nevins, host of the Colon Sports Show. To kick off the podcast, here's my latest episode of my Friday night high school radio sports show alongside senior Spencer Pugash. On this show, we start off with a quick high school basketball rundown and a special shout out for a Syosset radio alumni moving up the sports talk ranks. Following that is a college football national championship breakdown and some NBA talk that dives into the all-star game chatter and the return of DeMarcus Cousins. We then go into some MLB hot stove discussion with some Mets and Yankees mixed in and cap off our show with an NFL wildcard weekend recap, divisional round preview, and some coaching carousel talk. All the time lengths for each topic will be in the attached description for your convenience. Hope you guys enjoy the show and stay tuned for much more content going forward. You're listening to Friday Night Lights on WKWZ 88.5. Sciacid. Clear eyes, full heart. Let's go! Welcome to Friday Night Lights. My name is Spencer Pugash. I'm alongside Cole Nevins. Cole, it's our first show together. We have a lot to get into. How are you feeling today? Feeling great. You know, got through another tough week. We got midterms coming up and everything. So it's a nice stress reliever to come back on the mic and, you know, just talk sports for an hour, clear our mind. No doubt. And as a senior heading into his second semester, just putting the book closed on my uh, meaningful high school education and now just going to enjoy the ride for the last half of the year so let's just get into some school sports but first i think you have an announcement to make about the show's availability in a a new location yes i do so special announcement i'm starting a brand new podcast on itunes and soundcloud It is called the cole on sports show all the WKWZ shows will be posted on there, including this one, which will be posted this weekend. And all my other shows that I do independently will be posted on there. And I'm really looking forward to getting started. And, you know, Spencer, I think you'll be on both shows, considering that we're going to be working together on WKWZ and on the side. So big things to come with that for sure. Yeah, exciting stuff. Definitely you uh, t- taking matters into your own hand and being innovative. Definitely respect <laughs> the work ethic. So let's get into the school sports. And right now I think the team that everyone is buzzing about is the boys' varsity basketball team. They are currently 6-5. and five. They started off the year playing well, but the last three games have been a tough stretch. Uh, it started on December 28th against Kellenberg. They took a 34-48 to 48 loss. Then they played Freeport January 5th, uh, also lost that game, but by two points, and it was a really uh, crushing loss uh, at the end of the game. And this Wednesday, they face a formidable Uniondale team on their home court, came up three points short. Uh, I was We were actually slated to call that game Miles Capella and myself. Didn't happen because of technical difficulties, but 
nonetheless, we got to see the Uniondale team and Syosset play for the first few minutes, and the Uniondale team is huge. But, Cole, what do you see with the basketball team? What's kind of going on with them, and how do you project them playing in their game tomorrow against Farmingdale 2 p.m.? Well, referencing to your recap on the games that they've played so far, two of those last games, that two of those losses that they just had were within three points, which is just something you really can't have going forward for this team. This team really needs to finish out games. They blew leads, too. So it's really something that Coach Cardano is going to need to focus on with this team. But looking in tomorrow, looking into the game tomorrow, I'm sure that these boys really want revenge, you know, two really close losses. It's something that they really want to work back from. So tomorrow's going to be a really big game that they need to step back into the right direction. Yeah, for sure. Uh, you, you know, you can't really have four losses in a row uh, just because that'll really mess up the way uh, the team chemistry works and the morale. So hopefully they can get back on the right track against Farmingdale tomorrow. Won't be an easy contest, but you got to trust Cardona and this team because Farmingdale's 8-1, 3-1 uh, in conference. Definitely a great competition. Now, I know at WKWZ, I'm almost graduating, almost wrapping up my tenure. Cole, you're obviously on the other side of that. But what's really important to us is our alumni. And Cole, I know you have had special contact uh, with an alumni of WKWZ and the WKWZ sports program who is really making waves in the sports world right now. Would you like to elaborate? Yeah, so... Special shout-out to Jake Asman, a former WKWZ radio host. He's currently working in Houston, Texas with SB Nation and ESPN Radio, and he was just promoted to have a daily national broadcasted radio show that he is hosting himself, his first one. He's only 23 years old, came out of the WKWZ ranks, and it's really cool to see that Someone just from this, someone just from our school was able to come up all the ranks, all the way to where he is now, and he's surely an inspiration for Spencer and I. So, you know, we're really looking up to you, Jake, and we really hope you're the best. Without a doubt, Ithaca College alumni, WKWZ alumni. If he ever wanted to come back, I'd say on our Friday night we're show, down for an interview, you have an yeah. <laughs> open invitation whenever he wants it. Uh, would be an honor. So let's move into. The culmination of this college football season, it was certainly exciting uh, and surprising because Alabama and Clemson faced off. Alabama came into this game, uh, both teams came into the game undefeated, but Alabama came into this game heralded as potentially the best Alabama team of all time, potentially the best college football team of all time. They made pretty easy work of Oklahoma in that first playoff game, and all of a sudden, the kickoff happens, and Alabama loses 44-16. Uh, very surprising to me. I know I really put a lot of uh, trust in Alabama to win that game. Turned out that Clemson just had uh, a formidable showing. Trevor Lawrence was spectacular, the true freshman. What did you see there? Like, like, why was Clemson so dominant in that game? Well, first of all, I mean, I really wasn't expecting Clemson to come out like that, and especially because Alabama's riding all this momentum. And, you know, Clemson, they say Trevor Lawrence hasn't played in this national championship. You know, Tua has the advantage he's played before in this game. But the biggest thing that Clemson did, which I was so impressed about, is that they did not get phased. I mean, their mentality was unbelievable. The entire game, from the pick six at the beginning, they went through the entire game without getting phased by Nick Saban and an Alabama team who's known for coming back in games like this where they fall behind. So huge credit to them on that part. Yeah, and one team I think that did get phased was Alabama because even though Nick Saban has 
this wonderful coaching reputation. He's a great recruiter, a, a great coach. It looked like they situationally did not play their best football. They had a few poor showings in the red zone. Uh, I can recall at least three instances in which uh, they left points on the table in the red zone where they could have kicked field goals. Oh, the and fake didn't. field goal. The, yeah, the fake field goal <laughs> was absolutely atrocious. <laughs> I, I mean... I get if you want to run a fourth down play, they certainly had it with uh, with Jacobs running back. He's he's been really good. He's been uh, almost unstoppable in fourth and short situations. But then you run the ball with your holder. Like I don't know what you're thinking there. If you're Nick Saban, you look at the personnel you have at your disposal. You have so many people. I think I would have probably put the whole entire roster to run that football instead of the holder uh, there. So that was. A head, a head scratcher, and then Clemson. You got to you got to give it up to them because Travis Etienne was solid on the ground. Trevor Lawrence, as mentioned, spectacular through the air, flawless, three touchdowns, no interceptions, beautiful flow uh, running out of the helmet. And <laughs> the star of the game, though, for me was Justin Ross, a guy 100%. who on the broadcast they kept emphasizing it, the one that got away from Nick Saban, an Alabama wide receiver, highly recruited out of high school, almost quit football in high school, story of perseverance, and he just loved, fell in love with the Clemson culture, and it's easy to see why. Dabo Swinney uh, definitely comes off as a little bit more easygoing than Nick Saban. Uh, Saban's known for his temper tantrums. You saw it against Oklahoma when he spiked his headset and broke the thing in two on the sideline, even though they were up big. So Justin Ross really dominated that game. Lawrence just – there were a few plays. I could recall one in the third quarter where Alabama was just really controlling the drive from a defensive standpoint. They had stopped uh, Clemson on first and second down, created a third and long situation. And Lawrence, even though they got pressure on him – Threw up kind of a prayer to Justin Ross on the sideline, and he just kept coming down with whatever was thrown his way. Uh, mm-hmm. Spectacular performance and maddening if you're rooting for the Crimson Tide. Yeah, and I mean, some of those Justin Ross catches kind of gave me that DeAndre Hopkins feeling where he's you no know, bailing out the crappy quarterback that he has to play with. But, I mean, huge credit to Justin Ross. I mean, that, that was a revenge game that I'm sure he was lo- had on, marked on his calendar for months and years now. But, I mean... Give it up to Trevor Lawrence. He comes in this game, ton of pressure on him, and this was the game that I pre- I had Alabama winning this game. But in one of my predictions, I said this is the game where Trevor Lawrence comes on the scene. Everyone's going to be talking about it after this game, and it's going to be less of Tua and more of Trevor Lawrence. And I think with this game, and he showed the composure. That was the biggest thing that I saw. He went out there and just played such a solid, well balanced game that I'm, I was just so impressed. I mean, I was I was just mind blown on how good he was. Yeah, composed and. You know, as a quarterback, you're not only the uh, on-field leader of the team, but you're the you know the moral leader of the team. You're the guy who's controlling the emotions, calling the plays, of course. So he did a great job as a true freshman. A lot of people would see Alabama and they would get phased. Why wouldn't you? You have a defense full of future first-round picks. Uh, right across the line of scrimmage, but Lawrence showed uh, otherworldly composure. Now, there's been talk that Lawrence, of course, was the number one quarterback recruit out of high school. There's been talk that he's potentially the best quarterback recruit ever. Do you uh, want to put like a stop to that, or do you think <laughs> that you can keep fueling this discussion with his masterful uh, dominance against Alabama? Well, I, I definitely think that's premature, I, without a doubt. But the the biggest thing, another huge thing I saw from Trevor Lawrence that I'm sure scouts love to see is that that he uses his size. I mean, I don't know I don't know the exact numbers of his frame. I think he's 6'6". I don't know if that's correct. But Yes, that is correct. Yeah. I mean, he's a huge dude and he uses his size to his, has to his advantage, which is great to see from someone that young that he knows that he has that stature and he knows that he can take advantage of it in the game. 
I love that point, and I think you can contrast the way that he uses his size versus what we saw out of Kyler Murray in that first game against mm-hmm. Alabama because if we look at what Bama does from a defensive standpoint, their best player uh, – you know, uncontested, Quinan Williams, a defensive tackle, a guy who can get consistent interior pressure. And for Murray, stands at five foot nine. That created a huge problem for him. He couldn't see over the, the middle when <laughs> the pressure came closer to him. That's not even an exaggeration. It's truth. It had to, you know, he had to roll out to either side to make whatever throws that he needed. Trevor Lawrence, though, six foot six, as you mentioned, stood tall in the pocket and was able to take hits and deliver throws even with pressure in his face. And that's why I think uh, the impact of Alabama's really good defensive front was minimized. And like you said, his big frame, he wasn't afraid to use it uh, as a runner either. He had some plays where he would just improvise and scramble. And he's certainly not a quarterback who you would regard as a running quarterback, but a quarterback who could use his legs uh, situationally. And I think that, especially at the next level in the NFL, is the model that teams are really looking for. Uh, another quarterback who can run the ball uh, perhaps a bit more than Trevor Lawrence is Jalen Hurts, and he surfaced uh, late in that game for Alabama. What did you see out of him in the national championship? And more importantly, what what do you think he projects as going forward because he's on the transfer uh, portal right now? Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it's really going to be interesting to see, but I think the biggest thing for Jalen, I don't think he's a true NFL prospect. I don't think he's someone that teams are going to be you know, going all over when it comes draft time. But I, I think he deserves a strong end to his career. I think he deserves to go to a bit of a smaller school, take that starting spot, and show everyone that he isn't just the Alabama system quarterback that got overtaken by a true freshman, that he's a good um, game-managing quarterback that can help a team do really well. So I'd love to see him go to a middle-ranked team and just you know have a great season just to end off his college career. But I want to talk about Tua a little bit. You know, Something I really saw from Tua that was very interesting to me was just that how his team kind of magnetized to his play. You know, this is one of the this is probably the worst game that we've seen from Tua thus far, and you really saw how the team just couldn't play behind him. And then I like to relate it to Nick Foles. When Nick Foles goes in the game for Philadelphia, you can see the difference in the Eagles. They they play for Nick Foles because they know he's not as good as Carson Wentz, but they know they need to play better for him. And it kind of goes when Tua when Tua is playing well, the team plays really well, and now we see the downside of that. So I want to know if you really saw a connection. I think after one game, it's tough to draw like a consistent relationship there between uh, Tua and the Tua's emotion and the way the team plays. Because of course, like the reason that Tua probably had a bad game was because Clemson was by far the best team they faced in his tenure as Alabama's quarterback, and that's also a good reason why the the other guys wouldn't play well. So I wouldn't go as far to you know put that etch that into stone and declare it fact. But I do think that uh, he is unquestionably the moral leader of that team Uh, he's a respectable figure at quarterback a guy who is extremely even keeled because he opened up the game he threw that pick six on I think it was his first or second throw and all of a sudden he comes out the next drive firing he he threw a touchdown the next drive deep ball and he just seems so composed and I know we talk about Lawrence and how he's a first year uh, freshman you know true freshman starting but we forget that two is only a true sophomore like he's still young for this thing and he looked like a seasoned vet there so I do definitely agree that there is an element to Tua's personality that uh, is really just dem- demonstrative of innate leadership mm-hmm. and another big thing I think that this loss is going to be huge for Tua's development because I think this is a loss that's going to bring him into next season. You know, with a bit of taste in his mouth, he said, 
instead of going into next season and being like, all right, I've been perfect thus far, let's keep it going. He's like, you know what? Now I have a bitter taste in my mouth. Now I want to come back. And it shows for Alabama, too. Now that Clemson's coming up and everyone's talking about them being the next Alabama and everything, this is a year for Alabama to come in and say, you know what? We're Alabama. We should come in and we should dominate just like always. So next year's going to be a huge year for Alabama, in my opinion. Yeah, and if you're going to have that matchup between uh, Tua and Trevor Lawrence again. I think it'll be the fifth rendition of Bama Clemson if they do meet next season. I think everyone is kind of betting on that to happen. And it'll be really interesting because there's, uh, you know, the rubber match from 2016. Now, uh, you know, 2018, uh, Clemson was able to beat him. So we'll see. But, of course, Alabama sandwiched their win uh, in the first round of the playoff last year in 17 against Clemson in a pretty convincing fashion. So college football should be very intriguing next year. A lot to keep monitoring on the recruiting front. Uh, that's going to wrap it up for our coverage of college football, though, uh, probably for a long time on WKWZ. Cole, you have something? Yeah, we actually did just get breaking news from the studio. Hugh Jackson has been fired by the Cincinnati Bengals after just getting hired midseason. So um, we'll get into NFL later, and uh, especially coaching, but that's some pretty sudden news right now. Yeah, definitely expected that, though. Hugh Jackson uh, has been mediocre at best. We're going to talk about the coaching carousel later in our NFL talk. We have NBA on the other side of this uh, quick PSA right here. Welcome back to Friday Night Lights. It's Spencer Pugash alongside Cole Nevins, and we are really going to get into some NBA talk right now. The NBA is in that weird position where it's mid-January, and you're between the excitement of the early season that's definitely worn off and the trade deadline slash stretch run of the NBA season that ratchets up the intensity heading towards the playoffs. But one thing that's frequently discussed around this uh, January time period is the all-star game because of course for players this is not only a time to get recognition to become established among their peers in the league but it's my understanding that there's a lot of uh, off-season influencing that happens around these all-star games you hear stories of Isaiah Thomas convincing Gordon Hayward to come to Boston over the all-star game Uh, Anthony Davis was uh, and is going to be heavily recruited this all-star game uh, and Boogie Cousins was traded over All-Star Weekend two years ago. So big moves happened around the All-Star game. The big talk around the All-Star game this year, though, is the fact that in the second year of the All-Star game draft, it is the first year that the NBA is opening up uh, the content, opening up the draft to the fans. The fans will be able to, I believe, see over live television uh, the results of the NBA All-Star draft. And the NBA has this reputation as being not only a 24/7 league but a league that has uh or the league that has expressed the personality of its players much more of course the NFL you have the shield and baseball is ruled by a bunch of unwritten rules the NBA though uh demonstrates the personality of their players really amplifies uh individual people and that makes this all-star uh game draft so unique so Cole what do you think is the impact of this draft being open uh for the public to see well first of all I love the um thought that you had about how close the community is of NBA players and how much of, his, of an impact this is. I mean, the other year we had the Pro Bowl draft for the NFL. That's already gone. But, you know, that was kind of irrelevant considering all the players out. The All-Star game is a game where no one sits out of. Everyone plays in this game, and it's going to have a huge impact on the players. And, again, you nailed it with the whole off-season thing. 
this is something that the NBA has a very close community. You see everyone's out on social media talking all the time, more than any other sport. And the fans are all over the place. The fans are so passionate, which makes it so much better. But I'm really interested to see if the all-star captains, which are going to be elected, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. If they really have an influence, if their personal opinion on the players' personalities and who they want really has an influence on their picks. Yeah, and that's where I think the main intrigue comes from because you have these different storylines. You have just just think about LeBron, who's most likely going to be an All Star captain because it's fan vote, and he's LeBron James, the best player in the NBA, hands down, probably the best player of all time. Um, that's a but debate we're not for another into day. That, yeah. yeah, but he's a guy who. If you look at his relationship with Anthony Davis, his comments that he made about how he would love to play alongside him in L.A. and the NBA responding with a memo and saying it, it was potentially tampering. So you have that factor where he might try to recruit Davis to his team. But you also have the LeBron-Kyrie dynamic that they split in Cleveland, very public uh, divorce there for the two superstars uh, after winning a championship. And then... LeBron now is in L.A., Kyrie's in Boston. You have that rivalry between the teams. Does LeBron uh, you know, gravitate towards Kyrie, or does he not pick him? And then you have KD's impending free agency. So if there are any New York Knicks represented in the All-Star game, does KD become buddy-buddy with them? We'll see, because I, I just think there's so many interesting storylines here, a lot of stuff for the NBA fans on Twitter to devour. Um, so it'll be you know, really cool to see the interaction between not only players, but as you said, personalities uh, on this all-star platform. And another guy who we just mentioned was once traded over an all-star break. DeMarcus Cousins is targeting a return on January 18th against the Los Angeles Clippers for the Golden State Warriors. If we flash back to early July, Boogie was the straw that broke the camel's back with Golden State. Everyone had the understanding that they were a super team. He comes along and I think there was just a prevailing feeling of just demoralization and people were just crushed when they heard that Boogie was going to Golden State. He's been the best center or second best center in the league for some time now. Uh, and he's on this one-year deal with, with uh, Golden State who's been sputtering, but overall, is, you know, they still got it. How do you think he impacts uh, Steve Kerr's group up there in uh, the Bay Area? Well, first of all, I don't think he's necessary for the Warriors. I think... This was a move that was very forced by him. I think he's chasing a title. I don't think there's much of a debate behind it, except I'm most interested to watch how he'll fit in this lineup that they have and if he'll really affect everything with his past behaviors. And the two biggest points I'm going to watch for is, one, his performance coming back from his Achilles injury, and number two, and this is a point that I think a lot of teams are going to end up watching for, is his actual behavior because... When recruiting him for this offseason, because, again, he's on a one-year deal, they're going to look at his behavior on a team like this, a star-studded team, because, you know, Boogie's never played in the playoff game before. If he'll be able to gel with a team with this many stars when he's not the number one option, and, you know, c- control himself and just keep the team on a good level. So, I mean, we already know that he's gotten ejected so far this season without even playing a game. I think that was one time against the Knicks, I believe. But... I'll be so interested to see if he keeps his composure and if Steve Kerr will do a good job with keeping him cool. Yeah, I think what's so important about Boogie, and you mentioned it, 
is the fact that he's coming off a torn Achilles tendon. And in football, we see guys come off of torn Achilles tendons and have success. But in NBA, in the NBA history, there has been no one who's come off a torn Achilles tendon and been the same players. Just a few examples here. Elgin Baylor, he got hurt 36 years old before his injury, averaged 27 points, 13 rebounds. After the injury, 11 points, 6 rebounds. Uh, Patrick Ewing got hurt also at 36 before the injury, 23 points per game, 10 rebounds. After the injury, 9 points per game, 7 rebounds. And, of course, the you know Dominique Wilkins hurt his Achilles. Uh, he had a more respectable return, but the big one is Kobe Bryant, who really the Achilles rupture, the Achilles uh, tendon rupture was kind of the downslope of his career. He became uh, a high volume shooter still, but someone who was significantly less efficient yeah, and same. less explosive than he once was. So we'll see if Boogie's able to break this trend of guys who have hurt their Achilles and not been able to experience great success after. Because I think even though it's not good for the NBA that the Warriors are loaded up, it's good for the NBA if DeMarcus Cousins is a good player. Because ultimately, I don't think he's going to be in Golden State uh, long term. So uh, that's going to wrap up our NBA talk. Uh, We're going to get into some MLB talk. But first, I would like to announce that the Syosset High School will be having a 10th grade parent workshop Thursday, February 7th at 7 p.m. So if you are a 10th grade parent getting ready to embark on that 11th grade college process, uh, great resources provided by the guidance department there. Thursday, February 27th, uh, February 7th, rather, definitely want to be there at 7 p.m. So getting into baseball now. Free agency has been slow, and that's been the trend of baseball the last two years. It's been moving at a snail's pace, but that's not to say that there aren't things to talk about. We have seen the New York teams in the last week, in the last two days, make moves uh, within their infields that uh, definitely provide a lot of food for thought. Most recently, the New York Yankees inked DJ LeMahieu to a multi-year deal today. LeMahieu is a guy who came from Colorado, played second base, one of the tallest second basemen of all time, standing at six foot four. won a batting title in 2016 where he batted over 360. He's won uh, gold gloves before and made two all-star games. How do you think LeMahieu shapes the offseason for the Yankees here? Well, I think it, it kind of serves as a description for what they've been doing so far. It's a great depth and value signing, and that's something that the Yankees have really been focusing on. You know, we've seen with other teams that through injuries and when tr- uh, tragedy happens throughout the season, death is one thing that could save a team's season from falling into shambles. So it's good to see the Yankees grabbing some of these guys this offseason and, you know, stacking their team up. I mean, they grabbed Troy Tulowitzki too. You need that veteran presence if guys go down. And... Again, they have Didi Gregorius out for what looks to be a long time, so they need a, a uh, over-average replacement that could come in and really produce the same production. Yeah, DJ Mayhew is the guy who is going to have the direction towards that value, and I like that word because the Yankees of old, you know, when they were George Steinbrenner's team, um, they wouldn't really, they weren't concerned with adding values at the margins. They they were concerned with spending the money on whoever it may be that headlined the free agent market and just doing whatever it took to get that guy in pinstripes. Cashman and uh, Hal Steinbrenner now have completely changed that. Uh, They do still have a relatively high payroll, but they're not at the top of the league in payroll. They're near the middle of the league in percentage of revenue that they spend on payroll, and they're 
team that their core right now is defined by moves uh, of marginal value. You look at a guy like Didi Gregorius, I think he's the embodiment of that. Came from Arizona. Uh, they traded Shane Green for him. He's a relief pitcher for the Detroit Tigers. Nothing uh, crazy. And you get a, a shortstop that bats 260, 270, and plays great uh, defense. You look at first base, they picked up Luke Voigt late last season. And Luke Voigt is another one who uh, they traded uh, the lefty Chase and Shreveport, who really had no value out of the bullpen, and Voigt came up and was a huge presence for them in the playoff hunt. And, of course, in center field, Aaron Hicks. They traded uh, John Ryan Murphy for uh, Aaron Hicks in uh, 2015, I believe. And Aaron Hicks has gone from a guy who was ranked highly as a prospect but never put the tools together to someone who hits 250, 260, 25 to 30 home runs, and a great on-base percentage complemented by a very strong throwing arm in center field. So it seems that Cashman is directed at value ads and not just gross money ads in terms of a Machado or a Harper. And as a fan, it's kind of frustrating because they've gotten under the luxury tax for so long just to have a crack at these two 26-year-old superstars in Machado and Harper. And to see them add DJ Mayhew, who by all counts is a solid player, um, but he's definitely not Machado or Harper, and that's a little underwhelming, uh, I got to admit. Uh, going across the town, though, the Mets made a solid move yesterday when they picked up Jed Lowry from the Oakland Athletics, a guy who has had his two best seasons in his past two seasons. He's 34 years old. What do you think uh, Jed Lowry does for the Metropolitans. So, going back to the theme of value, I think Jed Lowry was a great value signing for the Mets, especially in a time where the Mets have a reputation of just everyone going getting plagued by injuries the entire year. You need veterans like Jed Lowry who are not washed up. So you're not bringing in a guy like Jose Batista last year who was on his last string. You're bringing in a guy who's coming off an all-star season. So I love the signing by Van Wagen. And I th- the only concern I have, though, not with the signing, but what the Mets are going to do with Jeff McNeil, the 26-year-old who came in last year, had a great breakout year, but now they made all these signings, and you know, they, get that, they trade for Cano, they get Larry, and I really just don't know what they're going to do with him, and they're going to use him as a utility guy, but are they going to trade him, or are they going to use him in everyday lineup, because they should, as he's older, he's not a young prospect. I'm really going to be interested to see what they do with him. Yeah, and the compelling part about Jed Lowry to me is his story and the way he has overcome a sleeping disorder. He had a deviated septum where he would not be able to get quality sleep. He wouldn't get that rapid eye movement sleep that is so necessary and so essential to be being well-rested. And two years ago, he gets that surgery to uh, undeviate his septum where he could breathe better and have higher quality sleep, and all of a sudden, at age 33 and 34, produces his two best seasons by far. And he said it's no coincidence that these have been the best two years of his career because he's feeling rested for once, not waking up tired, where in the past he'd get his eight hours and still wake up really groggy. And if you're trying to hit a 95-mile-an-hour fastball, down the middle coming at you from 60 feet away. You definitely need every bit of your awareness with you. And for him to get that surgery done, another guy who had something similar was Mike Napoli. Uh, both of them have seen their careers amplified and enhanced um, by better sleep. So just an interesting tidbit there for Lowry and one that might project well on him and his ability to continue to produce into his mid-30s. Uh, another name kicked around for the New York Mets 
A.J. Pollock, uh, former all-star center fielder, guy who's been crippled by injuries but is a five-tool player when healthy. Do you think that he is a good fit value-wise and um, position-wise for New York, or do you think they should stay away from the off-injured center fielder? In terms of the fit, it's incredible. It's something that they need. They have Juan Lagar starting right now. He's only a defender, really not that great at the plate. And you bring in A.J. Pollock, who's so well-rounded, but again, it goes back to the theme of the Mets. Every single year, we have guys going on the shelf for the entire season, and you're just going to add A.J. Pollock to that pile. I mean, it's worth taking a chance, but if he's asking for so much money that you really are tight on, because, I mean, it's the Mets. They don't spend anything. It's the first time they're actually breaking the bank for some players. But you look at A.J. Pollock, I mean, he's a guy that we could really need. But is it worth it, depending on the value of his contract? So, if I were the Mets, I play this by year. I let the market go by. If you really hear rumors heating up that AJ Pollock's getting heavily recruited by some teams, you go make a move or kind of you know start talking to them a bit. But if if the market's really dying down for him and teams are really shying away because of this injury, I think it's a perfect time for the Mets to swoop in, give him a value contract, maybe even a one-year deal, and say, you know what, prove the prove to us that you can last an entire year without getting hurt and be a consistent part of this team for us if we make a playoff run. He goes, all right, he signs that contract and uh, produces a good year for the Mets. So I really hope they do sign him, but I really hope they're smart with their money. Yeah, uh, definitely see your point there. I think from a fit perspective, just um, in the outfield, he's really good because you could put him in between uh, Conforto and Nimmo to man center field until uh, Cespedes comes back, and then you have a log jam, but it's a good problem to deal with. But if you don't get A.J. Pollock, then your center field spot is most likely going to be filled by uh, an underwhelming player, potentially Juan Lagares, who is another one who can't stay on the field. And at that point, you never know what's going to happen to him. You don't expect him to play a full 162, whereas Pollock is a guy who, as a right-hander, could balance out those two lefties on either side of him in the outfield. So fit-wise, he's been really good. But I want to talk about uh, another outfielder, perhaps an outfielder that uh, is drawing the interest of every baseball fan. That's Bryce Harper, because right now Bryce Harper is rumored to be meeting with the Philadelphia Phillies this weekend in Las Vegas, where he's from. Um, there's been a lot of speculation that this could be the team that he signs with. Of course, the Nationals have made him an offer above $300 million. The White Sox are lurking. And, of course, you always have the implicit evil empire. You never know if the Yankees could uh, strike. It's definitely established that Bryce is open and kind of welcome to the idea of playing for New York. LA's in the picture, too, and, and Chicago Cubs are as well. How do you see this Bryce Harper saga shaping out? I mean, this is a free agency that we have baseball fans have anticipated for six, seven years, really since Bryce Harper uh, broke into the show for the Washington Nationals. Well, I'll tell you this. Bryce Harper is going to get paid. He's going to get a massive contract. But one team that really no one's talking about much that I feel is a, is a huge possibility is going back to Washington. And they've done a lot this offseason to really – recruit Harper back to D.C., and I think they're going to make a run at him, and they they have the money to pay him, and I think they say, you know what, Bryce, let's give you one more chance. Let's see if you can – we brought enough pieces in that you're not dealing with a playoff team that's going to choke again. Let's see if you can prove yourself to be that guy. You can be the face of a city, but at the same time, he has teams like Philadelphia and the Chicago White Sox coming after him, and they're very enticing as well. He can, again, let those are three huge cities, Washington, D.C., Philly – and Chicago, so he's got a ton of decisions in front of him, so I'm really interested to see what he does. 
Yeah, I think he'd do a ton of damage if he were to sign with the Phillies in Citizens Bank Park because that's a, a really good hitter's park for uh, left-handed bats. I think he could consistently put up 40 to 55 home runs uh, in Citizens Bank Park. Might be good for his overall career numbers, of course. You heard the comment earlier in the offseason with the Phillies owner coming out and saying, we want to spend stupid money. Let's see if they actually do it. Uh, <laughs> go ahead and pay Bryce Harper this weekend. That would add some intrigue. Another guy from the Beltway made his name in Baltimore. Manny Machado uh, is also 26 years old, a free agent. Played some shortstop this year, but has been the best defensive third baseman uh, in the league for the past five or six years, a platinum glo- uh, glove winner. Do you think Manny signs uh, soon? And if so, do you th- where do you see him going? Well, it's going to be interesting to see who signs first because they can really do a copycat to see how much money they get. So if I'm Manny, I'm actually hoping that Bryce signs first because he can say, you know what, I put up good enough stats that I can compare with this guy that I can get paid just like him. But for Bryce, he says, oh, Manny gets this much. I think I'm better than him. I get more. So I'm really I'm the dark horse team I'm really looking for is Chicago it's the White Sox again. I'm really looking to see if they say, you know what, we want to we want to be over um the Cubs in this whole entire um battle for Chicago. And this is a guy, those are two guys who can really revive a franchise. A franchise has been dead for a very long time. So I really want to see if Machado or Harper takes that route. Yeah, the White Sox definitely have a connection there. And they've been adding players to their roster who have uh, so-called links to Manny Machado. They added Yonder Alonso, who is actually Manny Machado's brother-in-law. And they also added uh, John Jay, they, who they recently signed, who works out with Alonso and Machado. Uh, they're Alonzo and uh, John Jay are both University of Miami baseball alumni, so they all work out together down in Miami in the offseason. It's been pretty clear. Uh, Ken Rosenthal and others have uh, mentioned that this is a clear pitch to try to lure Manny Machado into playing uh, with people who he's comfortable with. As for who signs first, I would have to guess that Machado is the first one to bite, and that's because of the agents that each player is represented by. If you look at Machado, he's represented by Dan Lozano, an agent who's made his name in the MLB, is definitely a a well-known and good agent, but Bryce Harper, on the other hand, is represented by the one, the only, Scott Boris, infamous for his uh, ability to play with words and make out-of-this-world analogies, and and is well-known for keeping his players, holding their free agencies out into February. Last year, we saw it even into March. But look at Eric Hosmer with the Padres. He was the best free agent bat on the market last year. Didn't sign uh, till mid-February. So Boris is known to draw these things out, to make them a scene. And I think he's going to do that with Bryce Harper. He's not waiting... uh, you know, he's not going to sign before Machado. He's going to wait till every last penny is sucked out of uh, whichever team gets him. And, of course, you have the fact that not only can the player who signed second say, hey, the player who signed first got XYZ, but you also have that desperation factor because you have two teams in Philly and the White Sox who have money to spend and have made a commitment to their fan bases saying, hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to spend a lot of money this winter. Now they have to follow through on it if they miss out on the first guy. They're more inclined to overpay uh, just to get a big free agent. Well, another thing in that whole race to sign first is they may get first dibs on a team. That's another thing to think about. <laughs> what if both of them want to go to Philly that badly? No one's really saying anything. There's no communication between both sides, I mean, as in, um, in Harper and Machado, and one of them takes their move first. You're taking away from a team from a player. I mean, similar team. I think identical teams are going after each player. So it'll be really interesting to see if one of them says, you know what, I have first dibs in this. Why not go sign with them now? I might get a few less bucks, but 
I get the team that I want, and the other guy doesn't. So let's see if that comes out too. Yeah, that's something I didn't think about, but it's certainly interesting <laughs> because uh, that was on the spot. <laughs> they have so much overlap in their market. It's not to say, of course, Machado has the Yankees involved, who hasn't really, who they haven't really shown a ton of interest in Bryce Harper, and uh, conversely, Harper has the Cubs and and the Dodgers, neither of which uh, have shown interest in Machado. But they have those two overlapping teams uh, of the Phillies and the White Sox, and I'd say the Phillies are probably the more desirable team. Uh, they're closer to winning a championship, and I'd say that Philadelphia is more appealing than the south side of Chicago, playing second fiddle to uh, the Cubs. But again, Bryce Harper does have the fallback of the Nationals, who I believe he's comfortable with. So I don't think he's necessarily going to rush to sign anywhere, but that's definitely something uh, to consider. So that's going to wrap up our MLB talk. We have a ton of a ton of NFL talk coming down the pipe. Welcome back to Friday Night Lights. It's Spencer Prugash alongside Colton Evans. We are rolling right along here, heading into the home stretch of our show. And as promised, we have a ton of football coverage prepared. Uh, no better way to start it off than with a Wild Card Weekend recap. The first game that we saw on Wild Card Weekend was a matchup between the Indianapolis Colts and the Houston Texans in Houston. Uh, Indy was able to come out of that one victorious uh, in a pretty convincing way too. Uh, Twenty-one to seven, did the uh, the Colts won by? Cole, what do you see there? How did Indianapolis go into enemy territory, an AFC South rival, and come out victorious? I'm gonna use a popular social media expression right now. Hashtag as expected. I saw in in my predict my in my pre-playoff predictions. I had Indianapolis going to the AFC Championship. I stated multiple times how Houston is a very overrated team considering the teams that they've played thus far. They really weren't prepared for this game. You know, they're kind of like a, a Notre Dame in a way, you know, getting through their easy schedule, not prepared for the big dog that comes in. So I was not surprised about it. And I didn't expect Indianapolis to dominate the way they did, but I expected them to come out this game, and I'm really impressed. Yeah, Indianapolis really came out strong. Andrea commanded the game there. They went a little bit quiet in the second half, but um, I, you know, I saw for enough. you it yeah. was as expected. For me, I expected Houston to win, and I know Indianapolis has a better defense and a better offensive line. Quinton Nelson, absolute beast at left Love guard him. out of Notre Dame for Indy. But I had a trust in Deshaun Watson and DeAndre Hopkins, but it just wasn't their day. Um, they couldn't really get much going on offense. I think it's a real indictment of Bill O'Brien because he's the play caller for uh, Houston on the offensive side of the football, and there was no creativity. There was no ingenuity uh, demonstrated by the Houston Texans there. It was straight runs and deep passes, and that's something that an 8-year-old could pick out of a Madden playbook. You know, and In a playoff game, you like to lay it out all on the line, pull out the stops, show uh, some, create, some creative out-of-the-box play calls. Uh, certainly not demonstrated there by Houston disappointing uh, loss there but the nightcap of that Saturday was Seattle at Dallas a much closer game but Dallas came away victorious uh, 24-22 really they were able to control the ball on the ground Dak Prescott had a few good moments and Seattle came out with a conservative game plan but why did you think why did you think that uh, Seattle came up short there and did you have Seattle coming into the game or did you trust Dallas? I had Dallas coming into the game I think I couldn't take I couldn't not take them at home and Seattle on the road, that's definitely their weakness, and I think it really showed there and their their young age throughout the entire team. But on that topic of them being so young, I think this was a legit season for the Seahawks. And a lot of people have been saying, oh, it's a fluke, oh, this, that, that. No one really knew about their players. 
no team really comes. It's very rare that you see a team come into this year, come into a season with so many young guys like this and just have such a great season and not do the same thing the next year. This is a team that's here to stay. I was so impressed by the Seahawks this year. They overachieved my prediction of like 4-12, and 12, I think. So Russell Wilson's a true leader. Pete Carroll's an amazing underrated head coach. And I'm really impressed with the Seahawks more than anything. Yeah, absolutely. They shattered expectations this year. I thought they were going to finish last place in that division, that NFC West. But uh, really a testament to the competitor that Russell Wilson is at quarterback. One of the hands-down top five quarterbacks in the league right now. I'd really take him uh, over almost anyone. And the one criticism I had of Seattle in that game was they just ran the ball a little bit the too play much. Calling was yeah, terrible. I don't think I don't think you could go down into Dallas with Ezekiel Elliott playing on the other team and expect to control the game in terms of time of possession and running the football. You can't beat them at their own game. You're not going to outrun Ezekiel Elliott in that offensive line. What you got to do is throw the football. That's where Seattle had their advantage. They, you know, could spread the field out with Russell Wilson, Doug Baldwin, Tyler Lockett, and use every inch of space that they had to keep a faster, uh, more advanced pace of game. Something I expect another team, the Los Angeles Rams, to do against Dallas this weekend. But it seems like Seattle just went in there and tried to beat them at their own game, uh, unwise as they lost in a tough contest. But uh, like you said, still pretty solid season for the Seahawks considering the tools that they were given. Uh, now, another team that ran the ball a ton, the Baltimore Ravens, took an L in the early Sunday game to the Los Angeles Chargers and Phillip Rivers. What did you see there in that 23-17 contest? Well, for all my followers on Instagram, you see one thing, and I am not a Lamar Jackson fan. I am one of the biggest doubters of Lamar Jackson out there. I am proud to say it. I don't think he's that good. But the one thing, and this is the game that he got exposed, and I've been calling this for a while. I said, this is the one time, or this is the first time he's playing a team for a second time, and he's been able to let it, let all the running plays slide over the past, over that six-game stretch when he went 5-1 and because he was brand new to all these teams that are playing him, and he was absolutely exposed. All the garbage time stats, I really don't care about that. That's why it's garbage time. In the first half with, I think, negative passing yards, he was absolutely demolished by a Los Angeles Chargers team. Good defense, but nothing spectacular. So it's really interesting to see how Lamar Jackson came into this game and didn't impress. But it shows me one thing, and that he's going to have to do a ton of offseason work with his arm, and that's going to be the biggest emphasis for the Ravens more than any, getting any player of this offseason. Lamar Jackson, if that's their guy, they're going to give up on Flacco. That's their number one emphasis for this offseason. For sure, and I think he's a guy who has arm talent but needs to refine his accuracy. It's, it's not a case of someone who doesn't have good arm strength or you know d can't make good throws here and there, but it's about consistent uh, accuracy for Lamar Jackson. That was definitely too predictable. I did see a tweet that said... Uh, LA knew 60 to 70 yeah, percent of the play calls. Yeah, I saw there was an interview after. Yeah. yeah, so that's definitely something you can't do in a playoff game. You need to be creative. And of course, the last game, probably the most exciting one of the weekend, uh, Philadelphia at Chicago. We all know Clank Clank Cody Parkey uh, missed a Double field goal doink. there. <laughs> <laughs> so, what did you see uh, from Philly and uh, Nick Foles? Well, from Philly, I was impressed. Nick Foles did his thing. He came back. He led this team. Again, reminiscing to a point from the first five minutes of the show, they play for Nick Foles, and Nick Foles um, d delivers in these type of games. But I'm more concerned about Chicago, and I had a post about this this week. They should be absolutely embarrassed of how their play was and not worry about Cody Parkey missing that field goal at the end. This game is on Chicago. They're at home. They're playing Philly, a team just absolutely plagued by injuries coming in, and they lose at home in this type of game, and it has to come down to a field goal like this with a really bad kicker. 
They should be embarrassed. I don't care what you say. This is a terrible way to leave the season. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I know you, you like Barstool. I don't know if you saw the video of Barstool Carl after the game just raging <laughs> uh, as he walked out of the stadium, but that kind of uh, is really there's no better way to recap the feelings of uh, the Chicago Bears faithful there because they had a great mojo this season. They had that club dub going on after yeah, every win in the locker room. It seemed lot. like they had it, but uh, yeah, just poor uh, execution from Cody Parkey there at the end. Now let's move from recapping to something that I find much more exciting, and, and which is predicting. We'll start off, we'll go in order here. The first game of the weekend will be the Indianapolis Colts playing in Arrowhead Stadium. It's apparently going to be, as my sources tell me, uh, bad weather in Kansas City, Missouri, you know, <laughs> freezing cold there, loud crowd for a dome team like Indy. How do, how do they hold up here in uh, the Chiefs contest? I'm going to have to go with Indianapolis again because that was my pick coming pre-playoffs that they were going to make the AFC Championship. I'm going to stick by it. I think I have to. But I think the biggest thing that's going to win them this game is their balance. They have the offensive side of the ball. They have the defensive side of the ball. You're going to see a little bit of that Alabama-Oklahoma game right here. Kansas City is a very similar team to Oklahoma. Incredible offense, absolutely horrendous defense. So the one thing I'm going to say from this game, though, if the Colts win in this game, do not overreact, Chiefs fans, because this is a wake-up call for the, a true wake-up call for the team to really fix that defense this offseason. And if they figure it out, this is the team that's going to be a perennial IFC championship contender year after year after year. See, that's interesting. I don't think uh, anyone could disagree with the fact that Indianapolis is a more balanced team on the defensive side, but... I really think that Mahomes is explosive and that more than anything, Arrowhead Stadium is a ridiculously tough place to play. Well, Indianapolis, they're vulnerable, though. They've lost games in Arrowhead. Yeah, they've lost games in Arrowhead. But look at Indianapolis. They're a team that plays their games in Lucas Oil Stadium under the comfort of a roof. They played last week in Houston under the comfort of a roof. And you're going from Houston, which is a modestly difficult environment to play in, but, you know, roof, field turf. To Arrowhead Stadium, fans are nuts. Um, gonna have eighty to a hundred thousand folks packing that stadium, screaming at the top of their lungs, doing barbecue from six a.m. Um, you know, <laughs> in the thirty degree weather. Yeah, yeah thirty degree weather. The, the grass will be frosted over. I just don't know how that young team in Indianapolis is gonna travel well because they, you know, for all their balance, their balance is young. I think two out of their three best players are rookies. You have Darius Leonard uh, and Quinton Nelson. The, Nelson, of course, the guard, and Darius Leonard, the middle linebacker. How do rookies fare when, you know, the oven gets hot and they're in a really hostile environment? I'm gonna go uh, with Kansas City here uh, in what should be a very close and interesting game. Second game of the Saturday, uh, set is Dallas at Los Angeles. How do you see this one playing out? Does McVay and, and Goff get their first playoff win, or are we seeing a little more upsets from Dallas as they roll along into the NFC Championship? People are overreacting about this game. I think this is Los Angeles' game to win, and I think they win in a dominant fashion. I think this isn't a really close game. I think Los Angeles proves everyone wrong that says, oh, you know, they're not really that balanced. The defense is a bit overrated. This defense is filled with veterans. We've seen Aqib Tlaib. He's a Super Bowl champion. He's going to be a big presence in this game. I think Los Angeles takes it. Yeah, Aqib Tlaib's a guy who I respect 
every bit of him. I think that he is going to put the clamps on Amari Cooper. He's physical. He'll play press coverage. No one wants to go uh, and run routes against Aqib Tlaib. Like, he's just one of those dogs out there who he's just, he'll tackle you the wrong way. He'll rip your chain off as he did to Michael <laughs> Crabtree. You don't want to play against Aqib Tlaib. And Amari Cooper, for all his talent, is known to be one of the softer receivers in the NFL, not necessarily physical, doesn't like to engage in, in a true, like, fight and a battle at the line. I think Tlaib's going to get him there. Uh, Marcus Peters, the number two corner, a guy who is inconsistent at times but can make big plays, can make a play that'll win you a game at the end. Especially Dak seems like he's a little bit vulnerable. And you mentioned the talent on the defense with veterans. I look at the defensive line. I know uh, Dallas has a wonderful rushing attack, a great uh, guard in Zach Martin, but look at who they're going to be blocking. It's Ndamukong Sue and the, team the best player, yet. the best interior player, one of the best interior defenders ever in Aaron Donald coming off, I believe, an 18 or 19 sack season for the Rams. So that's really going to be neutralized, that running attack. So I, I'm with you there. I think L.A. wins, and the reason they win is, unlike Seattle, they're going to spread it out. They're going to force Dallas to throw the football, and that's where they have a distinct advantage over the Cowboys. Uh, moving to the Sunday set, this game uh, is certainly the one that hits closest to home for me. You have Phillip Rivers and the aforementioned Chargers heading up into Foxborough to play the New England Patriots, who are 8-0 and at home this year. There might be some snow on the horizon. It's going to be another game played uh, in chilly weather. You think Phillip Rivers goes up into Foxborough and gets it done, or Tom Terrific move on uh, and Patriots machine gets a, another win out and ends the Chargers' nice little run here? Let me say this. I'm a huge Phillip Rivers guy. I'm, I'm rooting for the Chargers in this game. I really want to see Phillip Rivers win a Super Bowl this year. I think it's his best chance, but I can't see them winning in Foxborough. And... This is this is a reoccurring theme year after year. People some for some reason doubt the Patriots. It's literally the dumbest thing in the entire world. This is coming from a Jets fan right now, talking to a Patriots fan. You cannot doubt Bill Belichick. I don't care how old Belichick and Brady are. You don't doubt them. You're playing in this condition. They've done this before a gazillion times. The, Brady hasn't been even playing as bad as, as people have make, been making it seem. I think New England takes this game. Not with dominance, but they take it. I agree. I think they take this game. I actually think they take it a little bit easier uh, than you might predict because look at matchups here. Look at uh, what LA's going to run out offensively. Melvin Gordon's hurt. Remember what Bill Belichick did to a hurt running back last time they came up in the divisional round? Le'Veon Bell, uh, 2017, came up there in January, was really a non-factor. He was neutralized after five or six plays. I don't think Melvin Gordon's going to be Melvin Gordon in this contest. So you take out Gordon. You look at what they're working with receiver-wise, Keenan Allen is going against the best cornerback in the NFL, and I feel confident saying that, and Stephon Gilmore. I think Stephon Gilmore is not going to let Keenan Allen do much, if anything. So then Philip Rivers is really working with the returning Hunter Henry. Talk about a tough challenge. You're coming into Foxborough for your first game uh, in, the, in the year. And then Mike Williams, who is talented, but inconsistent. I don't think they have what it, t it takes to get it done offensively. New England's balanced on the offensive side of the football on the other side and uh, I think Bill Belichick with two weeks to prepare against Anthony Lynn, newer head coach with one week to prepare seems a little bit lopsided uh, to me. Now, th the last game of this playoff divisional round uh, is Philadelphia at New Orleans in the Dome. New Orleans comes in as eight and a half point favorites, but Philly definitely has that mojo that comes along with Nick Foles. We talked about it before. Uh, what do we see going on down there in uh, the Bayou? I can only see dominance, and I think New Orleans just dominates this game, and they show why I picked them as my preseason Super Bowl pick and my pre-playoff Super Bowl pick. And I think they just come out here, Breeze does his thing in the Dome. It just so I mean... This is the biggest reason why I had them in the Super Bowl. 
it is impossible to beat them at home. I mean, they lost one game in the Dome this year. That was the Tampa Bay in Week 1. That is the definition of a fluke game. This is a game where New Orleans comes down and says, remember us? We're the team from New Orleans. We're in that Dome. You got No one's beating us right now. So I think this is the first of many games that's going to get them to a Super Bowl championship. Yeah, I've consulted some people on this game, you know, just really ask their thoughts because you have those two conflicting uh, like forces in Nick Foles and the Saints' home field advantage. But I think a lot of people would agree that this is the time where Nick Foles is a cute run, which has certainly been, I guess, more than cute because he got a Super Bowl out of it. So maybe it's disparaging to call it a cute run. But his very convincing run uh, turns to a close here because – I think, like you said, Drew Brees at home in the Super in the Superdome, controlled conditions, crowd noise bumping, Sean Payton calling the plays, not going to lose. Uh, and and I think New Orleans has an extra hunger that emanates from the way that they lost last year in Minnesota. Philadelphia was oh. a team that they would have had their <laughs> shot against. I think this is their shot now. They're going to come out firing. Two weeks to prepare. Uh, really would like to see New Orleans go and clean up the Eagles in this game. So we have one last quick segment here. There's been a lot of coaching turnover in the NFL. Cole, I'd like to ask you, what's your favorite coaching hire uh, from all of them that have happened in the last week or so? Well, I'm a Jet fan, again, and I love the Adam Gase signing. And I'm saying this more because no one agrees with it, and I love it. And I'm going to give a few reasons why quickly as we have a few minutes left in the show. First of all, He's had success in this league, and people forget to realize that he had a really good season with Jay Cutler and the Bears. He had a, one of the best quarterback seasons ever with Peyton Manning in Denver. And he won, He won. I think, 24—no, he played—he coached 24 games without Ryan Tannehill in Miami, the starting quarterback, the guy that he was supposed to coach around. And he made a playoff out of that. He stayed in the race this entire year this year. This is a guy that— even though he's gotten in fights with players and has a bad reputation now, I think that was because of just a whole accumulation of things in Miami. I think he's a guy who can shape this Jets team around. And in addition to that, they bring in Greg Williams, a guy who's really coming in after getting fired by the Brett and says, you know what, I'm such a great coordinator. Why is everyone firing me? He's going to come in and bring a whole ferocity to this Jets team. I love it all. I think McCagney did such a great job with this Jets team. I love the Greg Williams hire. I think he brings fire to a defense, to a team that really hasn't played with fire. Uh, Adam Gase, though, I think you're a little bit uh, you're, you're lucky now that it's 559 and you're just going to get out of here without a retort because I, as a Patriots fan, am equally as happy to hear of the Adam Gay sire. <laughs> I think it's going to turn out uh, poorly for the Jets, but we'll see. Of course, these things are really hard to predict. I remember reading a headline uh, from 2001, seeing it, of course, I wasn't reading it at the time, that Bill Belichick was a horrible hire uh, coming from yeah, Cleveland. Terrible. So these things really <laughs> don't happen in predictable manners, uh, and Hey, you know, you never know what could uh, come from that Adam Gase hiring. So, Cole, it was a pleasure being on with you. Hey, thanks for listening, everyone, for Friday Night Lights, for Cole and Spencer. We'll see you back uh, next week.